This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. Dale Vins is an eco pioneer. Back in the mid-1990s, he launched Ecotricity, the world's first green energy company based in the United Kingdom. Today, Ecotricity services more than 200,000 domestic and business customers with renewable energy sourced from wind and sun. And it provides sustainable natural gas made in part from grass cuttings. In 2011, Dale created the Electric Highway, Europe's first EV charging network which runs from Scotland to Wales. More recently, he founded Devil's Kitchen, an organization that provides vegan school dinners. Dale is also the chairman and owner of the Forest Green Rovers, a professional soccer team that has been recognized by FIFA and the United Nations as the world's greenest football club. And as I write in the December issue of British Vogue, Dale is the founder of Sky Diamond, a tech startup that grows diamonds from carbon captured from the air. This month, Sky Diamond launched a jewelry line in collaboration with eco-minded British jeweler Stephen Webster. It's available on stephenwebster.com, if by chance you're still looking for dazzling holiday gifts. Dale will tell us all about these pro-environment initiatives, as well as share tips on how we can all live a greener life. Also on this holiday episode, I'm going to tell you a bit about our music contributor, Eric Brace, an American roots musician, Grammy-nominated producer, and founder of Red Beat Records, based in Nashville, Tennessee. Eric's first band, Last Train Home, put out Holiday Limited, a now classic EP of festive tunes, available on SoundCloud. But first, Dale Vince, welcome to The Green Dream. Pleasure to be here. So how did you become a green entrepreneur? How did you get into this idea or this movement of green entrepreneurism? Because you've been at it for about a quarter century. Yeah, so really, I guess I was into sustainability before that. Pretty much since I was a kid, I've been concerned about that issue. I lived for 10 years on the road and off the grid, looking for a different way to live. When was that? That was in the 80s, the entire decade of the 80s. 1980s, for those that don't even know when the 1900s were. <laughs> there must be some people that think that was so long ago. And so really it was the start of the 90s when I began to use business as a tool to bring about an environment aim. So I don't feel that I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an environmentalist that concluded that using business as a tool to get change was better than using, let's say, a charity model, asking for people to fund something right. that I thought was a good idea. I thought better to turn, in this case, green energy was my first example into a product that I could offer people on a basis that they would accept it commercially. 1995, we were the first green energy company in the world at that time. Right. It's called Ecotricity. Did I pronounce that properly? Yeah, Echo is fine. I say eco, but echo, eco, tomato, tomato. We don't mind, do we? Us yanks with our with our, <laughs> our flat our flat vowels. So how did you come up with the idea of ecotricity? In my decade on the road, towards the end, 
I was using a windmill to power my trailer, to my lights through some old batteries from a scrapyard. So I understood wind energy. I lived in different places. I knew when it was windy. I saw the energy coming in and going out. It was 1990. I saw the first big windmill built in Britain, in Cornwall. And I thought to myself, this is an epiphany moment. I could spend another 10 years living this low-impact lifestyle myself, or I could drop back in and try and build a big windmill on this hill I was living on that I knew was windy. And that was a simple thought that kicked off the whole thing. It took five years of battles with everybody to build this first windmill. Wind energy was brand new. It didn't really understand itself at that time. It wasn't an industry. I was brand new to that. I had it wasn't been... an industry. It's something we've been using since the dawn of time. But it, is... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it wasn't an industry. Not for making electricity, no. And I had no money, no experience. And, you know, I lived in a trailer. So, you know, I was starting from a very kind of a low place, no credibility, I would say. So anyway, I fought all of these battles, managed to build the windmill in 1996. And just before, I could see it was coming. And I realized that it made sense to try and build some more. I'd learned everything about wind energy. I'd done it all myself. The process of planning, grid, finance, you name it. I went to meet the local power company who were monopoly buyers at that time and offered them green electricity. And they just laughed at me. They almost literally laughed me at the office. They're like, what's green energy? Who wants it? You know, kind of stuff. And here's a rubbish price because we're monopoly buyers. And so I left there deciding that I had to cut out that middleman to get a fair price for green electricity in order to build more windmills. And coincidentally, our electricity industry was just liberalizing. So it became possible to form an independent energy company, which is what I did, Ecotricity. Are there other companies like this now? All over the world, they've popped up. Uh, there was one early days in America uh, called Green Mountain. I don't know if they still operate, but I suspect that they do. Then there was one popped up in New Zealand, a couple popped up in England as well. Germany next. You know, they're just all over the world now. The mainstream players as well, the big utility companies have adopted green energy with tariffs and investment yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's become a proper global mainstream industry, which is a good thing. And what was some of the resistance that you ran into in those early days? You know, there was skepticism about windmills. I call them windmills because, you know, I think it's a nicer term and it's closer to what they really are. People say they're wind turbines, but they're nothing like a turbine. So I dispute that. Mm. There was skepticism that they worked that I knew what I was doing, that I could raise the money. Um, you know, local objections included they'll kill birds, TV signals, house prices, even pacemakers. It got a bit ridiculous, to be fair. And then there was a battle with the grid company who behaved badly. Then there was an appeal to fight against the planning consent that we did eventually gain and all that kind of stuff. It was just brand new. Wind energy was brand new. And the fear of the unknown, I would say, was the big driving factor. Now, you also co-created the Electric Highway. Can you explain what the Electric Highway is? And when did you do this? This was like also really early days before there were EVs, before mm. EVs were in fashion, right? Yeah. So that journey began in 2008 when I wanted a better car. I declared myself a petrol head and a tree hugger in social media and said, I have to resolve this. I'm going to make an electric car. This is pre-Tesla. So we decided to build a supercar because we knew that from our experience, whenever you do a green alternative to something, it's got to be good, at least as good as the alternative, if not better. Be sexy. Mm. So we made a supercar. Absolutely. It still holds the land speed record in Britain. 12 years later, we got it on the road in 2010 and we called it the nemesis because it was meant to be the end of the fossil powered car. That was our vision that we should and could electrify cars and all forms of other transport as well as part of the move to sustainability. But putting it on the road in 2010 showed me immediately that one of the problems of mass adoption of electric vehicles is where to charge them, because I face that reality every day. And so we started the electric highway, I started the electric highway in 2011 by completely covering our motorway network, the most important roads in our country, with places to plug in cars. There were virtually no cars on the road at the time, but we knew there was a chicken and egg problem 
that people wouldn't buy cars if there wasn't somewhere to charge. And nobody was building somewhere to charge because there were virtually no cars on the road. We just said, we'll break that problem and we'll go out and we build these things. And I think it was the first national network of charging points for cars in the world. And did you put these charging stations at rest stops and gas stations or did you build new places for them? So we built them at every motorway service station in the country. Our first installations were basically three pin plugs. That's our domestic equivalent of yours. And so it was a very slow rate of charge. But within a year, we were putting 50 kilowatt charges in, which would put 80% into a Nissan Leaf, really the first mainstream electric car in our country. It would do that in 20 minutes. And the dwell time at a motorway service station for coffee and that kind of stuff was about 20 minutes. So immediately, there was an almost perfect fit in 2012, 2013. And then we've gone on from 50 kilowatts. Just before we sold it, we put in 350 kilowatt charges, which wow. has revolutionized everything. That's fantastic. Did you meet resistance in asking places if you could install them? Or were they like, yeah, bring it on, we get more customers? Exactly. It was amazing. No resistance at all. We signed agreements with all the motorway operators, did the whole network from tip to toe of the country. And there it was. And you know what? To begin with, it was cheaper to give the electricity away than try to measure it and charge for it. So for the first five years of operation, it was free which like, you know, excited everybody, like the idea that you could buy an electric car and then charge up for nothing. I'd wow. say so we had a bit of trauma five years later when we said we have to charge now, guys, the volume of electricity being used is so much. And by the way, the tech has caught up and now we can measure it and charge. We have to do this. And some of our customers are like, so angry, but I expected this for life, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> There it is, human nature. Human nature. And you now supply green gas. So what is green gas? So green gas is an alternative to fossil fuel gas. In the same way that we can make electricity from the wind and the sun and put it into the grid instead of fossil-made electricity, we discovered a way to do this with gas as well. It's possible to make methane from plant sources and clean that up and put it into the grid like we do with renewable electricity. So we introduced the concept of green gas to Britain in 2010. It was a very exciting thing for me because as an environmentalist, I always thought that we had the answer for electricity, but when it came to gas, we just had to give it up. But when we discovered we could make gas and put that into the grid as well, we suddenly became a fully rounded green energy company. We launched a green gas tariff. And then we worked on a different way to make the gas. The standard ways back then were food waste or energy crops, which is intensive agriculture and causes a lot of its own problems. We chose instead to look at grass. And right. we've done a couple of studies now that show there's enough grass in Britain. I mean, who has the most beautiful lawns in the United <laughs> Kingdom, well, right? It's actually fields, right? What we're looking at is farmers' fields where they grow a lot of grass at the moment to feed cows. A very inefficient process. We found there's enough grass to make all of the gas that Britain needs. So suddenly, it's a really big part of how we get to net zero. We're building our first project to do this right now. And come February next year, we'll be pumping green gas made from grass into the grid, enough to power about 4,000 local homes. So a really big step. Quite excited by that. Is it a solution for the shortages we're facing now from the war in Ukraine? Well, yeah, because we, for example, in Britain can be energy independent. We've got enough wind and sun to make all the electricity we need. And I think that applies to every country in the world. Every country has access to wind and sun. And we've got enough grass to make all of the gas we need. If we're energy independent, we're completely disconnected from price shocks as well as shortages. And some of these price shocks are not about actual shortages, they're fear of shortages. You know, the price of fossil fuels have gone through the roof just in case there's a problem, but there haven't been shortages yet. Have you been speaking with lawmakers? Are you pushing to get Britain to be energy I sufficient? I am. And where does that stand? I would say that in the early days of wind and renewable energy generally, the kind of resistance we bumped into or the obstacle we bumped into was that it was too good to be true. It was so benign as an energy source, relatively cheap. It's now the cheapest form of energy we can make. It just had no downsides and people would have like, well, there must be something wrong. And when I 
presented green gas to the opposition party in our country a few months ago, I got exactly the same reaction. There must be something wrong because our national program says. We <laughs> this can, makes too much sense. Yeah, we'll, we'll create 160,000 jobs in the rural economy, put 15 billion a year into the rural economy. We'll create vast wildlife habitats in the process because we're organic and make all the gas we need. And it's like, well, that's just, there must be a downside. And that's what they're saying. There must be something wrong with it. <laughs> we haven't found it. That's where we're at at the moment. But I figure building the first project, we always find this works, build it, and then you can bring people in and show them that it works, and then you can uh, you know, start the ball rolling. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. If you're enjoying this conversation, tune in to our episode with Hannah Elliott, the luxury car writer for Bloomberg Pursuits and a regular contributor to The Green Dream. For our debut chat, she told me what it was like to drive the new Lucid, a luxury EV, from San Francisco to Los Angeles without a fixed plan for charging stops. When the car needed to get juiced up, well, here's what she did. I started Googling and I was like, you know what? I'm going to have a beautiful lunch at the Ritz. I'm just going to drive down the road. I'll go to the Ritz Santa Barbara and have a beautiful lunch. I knew that the Ritz would probably have chargers there for guests. So sort of rolled down the hill another 30 minutes or so. They were very nice at the Ritz, but they did say, oh, the wait time for the charger, you know, you'd get it tomorrow. They were very nice. They did direct me to a shopping center in Santa Barbara that had a bank of chargers. These were fast chargers. These were the Electrify America chargers. Right. Where I parked, I charged for an hour and 23 minutes, and in the meantime, bought some plants and uh, went to a home goods store. (laughs) Well, I killed time. I'm on a plant kick right now because, you know, I've recently moved to Los Angeles, and this is what one does when you move to L.A you get into plants. So I loaded up on Flora. And at that point, I did get a full charge and then drove the rest of the way to LA. Subscribe to the Green Dream Podcast and hear this and all of our other episodes. And tell your friends about us too. Now let's return to my talk with green entrepreneur, Dale Vince. Now, one of my favorite projects that you're doing is called Devil's Kitchen, which provides vegan lunches to schools in the UK, correct? Yeah, that's correct. You know, in the US, Alice Waters has been trying to improve the school lunch programs. This has been her project for years. Like for every step forward, she goes two steps back. Like she might get into one school for a little while and then they're like, oh, budget cuts, we can't do this anymore. Or there's resistance, there's just resistance. Or maybe kids just don't want to eat vegetables, you know, like there is resistance. She's got, and so it hasn't been the kind of success that you would think it could be, like, you know, getting kids off of pizza and chips Mm. and crisps and fries for lunch every day. So how did you come up with this idea and how did you get it into the schools? So at our football club, Forest Green Rovers, which we haven't talked about yet. That's my next thing. But I guess we may. We've learned a lot about how to introduce plant-based food to unlikely audiences, in our case, a football crowd. And we've made... Not just the players, but everybody. That's right, the crowd, the actual fans is what I meant, and the staff and the players, absolutely. And through that experience, we've made our own burger, which is an amazing burger. I'm a big fan of burgers. I'm vegan as well, have been for 40 years. It's the best burger I've ever tried. And we had the idea... Four or 40? Four or four? Yeah, four zero. Before it was a trendy thing to do. When it was a mad thing to do, right? 
when <laughs> <laughs> that was the reaction you got. What, what, what do you eat? <laughs> we had this idea that we could take this food that we were making, which is really good food, high protein, uh, low fat, low salt, made just from plants and absent of the 14 major food allergens, soy, gluten, wheat, nuts, you know, you name it, which makes it really suitable for school or any kind of mass catering because it's completely inclusive. We set up a little factory, we made burgers and balls to begin with, and we started talking to the catering industry that supplies the schools, the wholesalers. And we met their price point, which is really super important. And we ticked an awful lot of other boxes in terms of the health of the food. We road tested it with schools around where I live, and I went to like meet some of the kids, and we gave them different flavor options and stuff like that. They all loved it. We've got a kind of heritage story that comes from football, which is exciting to a lot of kids. You know, this is what the players of Forest Green eat. And we're in 10,000 primary schools now, maybe two or three years after launching. And that's half of all primary schools in our country. We're in universities and secondary schools as well, other football clubs. It's kind of taken off, which is fabulous. That's fantastic. Now, if you didn't go to these schools or the football clubs, is it possible to get food from Devil's Kitchen? Yeah, at one online supermarket so far called Ocado, we're working on the others. They're quite hard to break into. What is it called? It's called Ocado, O-C-A-D-O. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we sell them there. They've gone there really well. And you can actually buy them at the club now. We've just opened a new shop with a freezer because our fans keep saying, where can I buy this stuff? So we're going to have freezers in our new club shop. Freezers, no doubt, powered by ecotricity. Yes, we are powered 100% green electricity and solar. So tell us about the Forest Green Rovers. We are in the thick of the World Cup right now, hmm. and the world is football, soccer, mania at its height. And you have what is called the first UN-certified carbon-neutral professional football club. What makes a football club carbon neutral? Cool. The UN declared us the first sports club to be carbon neutral, actually. Not of all? Of all. Wow. Absolutely. And that was three, four years ago, which was a fabulous thing. We'd been measuring our carbon footprint for 10 years and reducing it year on year. They're the first two steps, measure and reduce. And the UN came along and said, we've got this program. Nobody's completed it yet. The third step is just to buy carbon offsets to neutralize the part of your footprint that you can't reduce directly. And we said, hell, why not? I don't actually believe in carbon offsets that much. I think they come with problems. They allow people to- I do too. Yeah. It, it, it gives you free license to keep doing bad that's right. instead that's of right. trying to fix the good that's and right. trying to pivot to the good. Absolutely. But if you do it properly, if you have reduced and you do reduce every year and you only carbon offset the bits that you haven't yet got to, there's space for it. So we did it anyway. We said to the UN, fine. They're UN certified offsets as well. So they're you know top grade. There's no greenwashing in there. And uh, that was 2016, I think it was. So where are the Green Rovers and what is their record? Well, so I rescued the club in 2010 from bankruptcy. And it was a lower league or known here as non-league club in the one, two, three, four, fifth tier of English football. We're in the third tier of English football now. We've won two promotions in that time. We've turned the club completely green, tackling the big issues of energy, transport and food first, because we discovered in the early 2000s that 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint and every organization of any size is in the three things, how you power yourself, how you travel and what you eat. So we focused on that at the club. We've got an organic pitch that has no fertilizers or pesticides put on it. We've got a wildlife area around the edge of our ground. We have wild orchids and slow worms as a result of that electric car charging for fans. We did that super early before fans had electric cars, but every match now they're full. Vegan food was the big thing that took all the media attention, but there's so much other stuff we've done with band singles. And what about the uniforms? Uh, Yeah, they're made from bamboo or coffee grounds or recycled fishing nets, that kind of stuff. You know, there's no kind of detail that we haven't looked at. We're trialing this year for the first time washable fast food containers for food and drink. We don't have single-use containers in the ground now. Excellent. And what about the shoes? 
Uh, the shoes to play is by themselves, but they're not leather for sure. They will be plastic. You know, they'll be whatever the big providers of football boots have got in their supply chain at the moment. But you can see that's changing as well in terms of using recycled yeah. materials. That's happening. The last thing left is the ball, which is, <laughs> I guess, still made of leather, right? No, God, no. They haven't been made of leather for years. It's a terrible material for footballs. Um, you know, it absorbs wet, for example. Leather footballs are notoriously right. rubbish from back in the day. Nah, that part's taken care of. They're made of plastic. Now, any of your players playing in Qatar right now? One of our ex-players was playing in Qatar. Kiefer Moore played for Wales last night against England, and he used to play at our club, hmm, I don't know, maybe three, four years ago, something like that. And your club is based in Stroud? Yeah, they're, yeah just down the road from the office where I'm sat in now, maybe 15 minutes away. The town that it's in is called Malesworth, population 5,000, our stadium capacity is 5,000. We're the smallest club ever to be in English football league that carries our sustainability message. Incredible. You know, our message has gone around the world. And I did football accidentally just as a rescue mission. Found I had to change everything. Realized I'd be challenging a new audience with my message. That made it more appealing because football fans are stereotypically not going to be open to that kind of stuff. And it worked better than anybody could have ever dreamt. You know, we have a global platform now for talking about sustainability. And we've seen the world of sport change around us. Absolutely, absolutely. Have other football clubs come to see you and pick up some of your ideas and are adopting them? Where can we see the influence of the Forest Green Rovers and carbon <laughs> well, neutral practices? I guess the first big thing was the UN approaching us around about 2016 and saying, look, we've seen your work and we're about to start a global program to do the same kind of thing. So come and talk to us. So we did that. We became a founding member of something called Sport for Climate Action, which is a program from the UN designed to reach out to all of the organizing bodies and participant clubs of sport in the world and use their platform to reach their fans to make them you know, live more greenly. I would describe it as being fans of the environment as well as fans of that sport. And that has the most enormous potential for change. That was 2016. And since then, we've been talking to organizations of rugby, tennis, football, I mean, you name it, the whole world of sport. There are nearly 300 signatories to that program now. It's almost the entire world of sport. So we've seen that change and closer to home, Premier League clubs coming to talk to us, England, the national team coming to see how we have an organic pitch, sending food samples to Premier League teams to try with the players and that kind of stuff. So in football, we've seen that away fans come to our ground, they go back to their club and say, why can't we have food like that? Away directors visit us. And from back in the day, the first conversations were all about, they were skeptical, you know, stood back a little bit from this crazy thing that we were doing, bringing the environment into football. Now, when they come to our ground, they're telling us, oh, we've got solar panels, we're putting electric car chargers in, and we're all on the same page. And your sexiest project, I think, which is what I wrote about in the December issue of British Vogue, is Skydon. You're capturing carbon from the air, which we need to be doing, and you're turning it into diamonds because diamonds are made of carbon. And if they're compressed carbon in the earth, why can't we do it? above ground. I just thought, yes. like, yeah, this is totally what we need to be doing and how, and stop the mining and digging, digging, digging up the earth in order to find these gems. Yes, there's a lot of magic to that, but I love the idea that you were doing good, positive impact by absorbing all this carbon from the air to make all these dazzling gems and not making damage at the same time and impoverishing regions and and all the negative impact that mining has. So when did you start doing this and how did you come up with the idea? I had the idea about 10 years ago, probably. And it was really a kind of a mind wandering thing that I do that. I thought about geoengineering, this concept of changing the environment on a big scale in order to pull carbon from the atmosphere and lock it up. Because 
Getting to net zero is super important to stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. But once we've done that anyway, we've got to pull carbon out of the atmosphere itself because there's too much in there. So that's coming, right? Whether we do that in series or in parallel, we have to do that. And I thought about the various ways to pull carbon from the atmosphere. And I realized it was only half of the job because once you've got the carbon, you've got to lock it up into a permanent form. And it was a hip hop and a jump from there to the De Beers marketing slogan, diamonds are forever. And I thought this is perfect. If we can take carbon from the atmosphere and turn it into diamonds, we've locked it up forever. We've created something really special that people want to have. And I thought back then that we could actually deliver sackfuls of diamonds to companies every year and say, this is your carbon footprint and you can give them to your people or what you want to do with it. And, you know, everybody wins. It sounded fantastic. But what I discovered... And, and was dilute the, the wealth of De Beers. Yeah, we're okay with that too. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's coming, right? I think that's coming. We, a lot of people campaign for the end of fossil fuels now. We started a campaign for the end of diamond mining because it's so damaging. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. But what we discovered was that there's not that much carbon in a diamond. So it's not a very practical carbon capture technology for the big scale that we have to do it. But it's a wonderful hearts and minds approach to say that, you know, this life that we need to live, this green life, anything is possible, right? If we can make diamonds from the atmosphere, we can do anything. And a big part of our message to people is that we haven't got to give stuff up. You know, we say whether it's burgers, cars, football, or even diamonds now, because we've done all of those things. We just have to find another way to get what it is we want. So off the back of realizing it was a small carbon absorption, we went looking for the stats for diamond mining of the ground and found there were none, right? None. So we commissioned the first independent study into diamond mining and discovered a horrific environment story. And so suddenly our diamonds are an alternative to a massive environment damage. I'll give you some stats. For every single carat of diamond dug out of the ground, and there are 150 million a year, the mining industry digs 1,100 tons of rock for a fifth of a gram, which is one carat. In the process, they expose 30 tons of toxic metals to the environment, consume five tons of water, and emit half a ton of greenhouse gas. That's for a single one carat stone. And it's being done you know, at scale, 150 million carats a year. Vast environment damage. Plus there's the human Absolutely. side, which yeah. is people working in mines yeah. and- Absolutely. I mean, you're right. Living uh, underground yeah. and inhaling all those, yeah. those chemicals. Yeah. And, and the funding of wars, right? One thing that we discovered earlier this year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that 30% of all of the diamonds in the world come from Russia. So with all of the sanctions going on against Russia to prevent funding of the war, we're like, oh, don't forget diamonds, everybody. Interesting. I and most diamond that. shops or jewelry shops won't tell you where the diamonds come from, and they don't even know. No. So you don't know. There's if no traceability whatsoever. No, not they, at all. They can say, we got them in Antwerp, and before that... Yeah. Absolutely. So our, our diamonds are made from the sky. We like to say we mine the sky. Our ingredient list is so simple and short. It's the wind, the sun, the rain, and atmospheric carbon. That is it. And we are carbon negative by design, not carbon neutral. Our process is carbon negative. We love that. I love that. Now, this is different from lab-grown diamonds, which we keep hearing about. It is different. They are still grown in a lab, and it does use the same technology. It's known as a CVD or something vapor disposition machine. They are different, but they are still grown in a lab. All the other labs that you'll see in the world today get their gases from an industrial process, basically from fossil fuels. So they may claim to use green electricity using paper offsets and that kind of stuff, often not in a genuine way. But the gases that they use come from the fossil fuel industry. And that's the big difference between right. us and them. We take everything we need from the sky. Right. Right. And you're the only one still doing this, right? Yeah, we launched, we really made them available for sale at the start of this year and launched the idea late last year after seven years of R&D to find a way to do it wow. and about three years of perfecting the recipes. And last week, 
we had certified for the first time our first perfect diamond. It's D in color and it's flawless. Only one in 20,000 dug diamonds meets that standard of quality. So we're really super excited by that. We've hit the top grade. You know, uh, this is our recipe process kind of maxing out. That's fantastic. So this week you're launching a new jewelry line with the designer Stephen Webster. Is that line green from beginning to end, as environmentally positive as possible? Yeah, so Stephen Webster is a British designer jeweler that I first went to speak to about seven years ago. And the first stones that we made were brown. And I took some to see him. He didn't know what I was coming to talk about. And I just went, look, we just made that as a diamond. And he was like, shocked. And he loved it, by the way, even though it was brown. He sent it downstairs to his testing lab. And they came back and said, it's a diamond, which was improbable at the time. He expected them to come back and say, yeah, it's made in a lab. Um, it's he, mud. Yeah. <laughs> so he fell in love with the idea. And we said, well, let's collaborate. Once we've perfected the recipes and everything, let's work together and launch something. He's designed these this amazing jewelry. He's got his own five unique diamond cuts that are at the core of that. And he uses recycled metals. So he's been on this path anyway of more sustainable jewelry. I'm just happy to finally launch with him a world first collaboration between Sky Diamond and Stephen Webster. I love that. I love that. Now, are there other gems that you're going to be able to make with this process? I mean, can you do colored diamonds like your brown diamonds, which Mm -hmm. actually are a thing in the world, Mm -hmm. and pink diamonds and blue diamonds and yellow diamonds? We've done pink and blue, and they look fabulous. I really like them. Black is an idea that we had, make black diamonds, and green, kind Mm -hmm. of ecotricity green, which is really vibrant, bright green, not a grass green. We'd like to make those as well. You know, at this point in time, we've just moved out of what you think of as an R&D phase in our little lab. And we're just moving into a commercial phase of production and sales and marketing. And we're getting ready to grow from five machines that make our stones to about 30 over the next 12 months as we grow our sales and marketing. And then in parallel, we'll be seeking out new colors. Also, size is an issue. I mean, it's fun. We've grown a a stone so far. I think that it was about six carats. And I think we'd like to try and grow something even bigger. Right. Now, you said from the beginning of your life, since your childhood, you've been green-minded. You've been raised with environmentalism as part of your ethos. My parents weren't interested in it. The school wasn't interested in it. Nobody was interested in it. But it concerned me. And I remember my first concerned thought was where all the oil came from. I was looking at cars. I knew they had roughly 10-gallon tanks to hold fuel. I was like a, a kid that liked to make things, power them with batteries and that kind of stuff. And I I was very aware of the finite nature of batteries back in the day. They weren't rechargeable. They had valuable metals in them, but you had to throw them away. And I thought, how much fuel is in all of these cars on the roads today, which isn't as many as it was like 40, 50 years later? And and where does it all come from? And when will it run out? Because I knew that it had to run out, but nobody was talking about it. And this would have been uh, mid to late 70s. Right. And you were living where? Living on the east coast of England, a place called Great Yarmouth. And I also had concerns about animals as well. You know, eating animals, it, it really didn't sit well with me. And, you know, and I bumped into culture at that time when I talked about it and challenged it. You know, my parents were angry about that. Why would you, you know, talk about which part of an animal this is? And I'm like, well, if I'm going to eat it, why can't I talk about what it is? Kind of thing. It was all about accepted norms. I was outside of, you know, quite a lot of those. So that's when you became a vegan? Uh, when I left home, which was around about the age of 18, that was it. I never had meat after that. And it was a short journey from vegetarianism to veganism. So let's talk about the bigger picture of the green economy. I was at a conference last year in Edinburgh, TED conference, and Al Gore said that the green revolution has the potential to generate more jobs and more wealth than the industrial and tech revolutions combined. Clearly, you've been proving this by creating cool companies and cool jobs. 
Do you agree with this idea that through innovation and trying to fix all the damage of the Industrial Revolution, we can actually have a better economy, a green economy that's really healthy? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. And if you look at the concept of energy independence, which is going against the grain of the last few decades of globalization, where we've opened ourselves up to global supply chains and markets where somebody else sets the price. If you look at energy independence as the very opposite of that, saying that we'll make the energy we need here and use in our country, the economic benefits of that are absolutely enormous. Right now, we're spending £150 billion a year on our electricity bills as a nation. With a third of that sum of money, we could make all the electricity we need here in our country with 50 billion. And then after that, our electricity bills would be about 15 billion pounds a year, not 150. And that money won't leave our economy to go to fossil fuel regimes somewhere else in the world. It will stay in our economy, which is the most incredible strengthening that I think any industry has ever been able to offer to a country. Absolutely. And it also frees you up from political issues. Like we're dealing with Ukraine right now, that why aren't we going to be able to have gas in our homes to heat our homes this winter because there's a war in Ukraine on the other side of Europe, Mm -hmm. that you're less dependent on a very unstable geopolitical atmosphere and relationships. And it's it's incredibly freeing in a sense, isn't it? Definitely. And it's not just instability from the occasional war. And there have been many wars either fought directly about fossil fuels or or in a kind of pseudo sense in the Middle East, for example. But the fossil fuel industry, OPEC, is a supplier's cartel and they manipulate the market to put the price of oil where they want. So we don't even have a free market in global oil. And being energy independent frees us from the cartels, the price speculators and and the manipulators, as well as from global events like the old war here and there, which just keep happening. What do you say to people who brush off climate change or say, whatever I do, it doesn't really matter because the U.S. and China are making so much pollution that my little effort isn't, you know, it's going to be a raindrop in the ocean. How do you convince people to get on to the green train? Look, it's simply the right thing to do. And people said back in the day when recycling first became a thing, oh, what difference does it make if I recycle my plastic or my glass? But now we've got recycling levels of about 70, 80% in some places. Collectively, these little things that we do add up to something big. So what for you are the biggest issues today? I have a really simple answer. There are only two things. And all of the big issues we face get resolved when we change these two things. Stop using fossil fuels and stop eating animals. Because intensive animal agriculture is not just one of the biggest drivers of the climate crisis, but it's also the driver of the global sixth mass great extinction of wildlife on our planet that's happening now. Because we take so much land, 90% of our planet for farming to grow animals to feed ourselves, the most inefficient process. We need 75% less farmland. If we simply eat plants, we can give the rest back to nature. Obviously, fossil fuels is driving the climate crisis, polluting the air, polluting the land and the water. And, uh, you know, put these in combination, There really aren't many other problems that we need to worry about, fossil fuels and animal farming. What are your next projects? What's on the bulletin board that you're going to tackle next? Clearly, you've done electricity, gas, school meals, sports, cars. What's next? Diamonds. And diamonds. (laughs) Jewelry. We have a water machine that we've been working on for five years. It's come out of R&D now. It's being tested. It basically will take a house, or you can scale it up to a village or whatever you want take a house off of the sewage and mains water grid. And this could have an application in California, for example, where you've got chronic water shortages. We can see that. And we waste a lot of water, of course, in our normal way of living. This device will capture everything that you put down the drain, clean it up, 
and make it available to use in the house again. It creates a cycle of water in the house that can make you independent from the water and sewage system. It's only a cubic meter in size. We've shrunk it from the size of a room to a cubic meter. It's a retrofit device. You just dig a little hole, a cubic meter hole, and drop this thing in beside your house, and everything gravity feeds into it. It cleans up the water, puts it into another one cubic meter tank, and that's all you need. Uh, maybe American houses are a bit bigger, but this is a you know rough yeah. model for Britain. It's undergoing certification for global use, which is really exciting because water is a big climate issue. We're going to start a zero carbon airline. It's going to be hydrogen-powered planes. It should be in the skies in 18 months' time. Zero carbon flying, the length and breadth of Britain. And within a few years, we'll be across Europe. Really exciting time because it's held to be one of the kind of things that we can't solve, right? How are we going to fly in a world of net zero? We think the answer is coming, if not almost here. And what can listeners do individually? It's always about three things, energy, transport, and food. So look at how you power your home. You know, you can buy a green tariff. That's easy almost anywhere in the world. But you could also look to make your own electricity with solar panels. That's become super economic. Mm. Also, change your appliances, light bulbs for LEDs, right? I mean, you get your money back in 12 months or something. And energy-efficient appliances, when you change appliances, you know, go for something that uses less energy, do insulation, that kind of stuff. It's always about wasting less, using less. And what you do need, get it from a green source. So that applies in energy. In transport, it's just the same. You know, uh, think about how often you travel and, and why do you really need to. When you do travel, do it in a lower carbon form. Get an electric car if you can afford it. Use a bike if it works for you, that kind of stuff. And in food, stop eating animals. It's one of the biggest easier things that people can do, and it will make you feel fantastic. Thank you so much for being on The Green Dream. We've had a wonderful time with you today, Dale Vince. Thank you. And hearing about all of your adventures and especially your dazzling sky diamonds. Thank you for leading us to a greener future and keep at it. And we look forward to hearing more about new projects to come. That's awesome. Thank you. I've really enjoyed being with you today. So thank you for that. Back in the early 1990s, when I was a news aide at the style section of the Washington Post, I wrote a performing arts column for the Sunday paper called Limelight. Each week's subjects were assigned to me by a young editor named Eric Brace, a gifted writer and an amateur rock musician who, on Friday nights, could be found performing with his brother Alan at the DuPont Circle Bookshop, Kramer Books, and afterwards. Eric was on guitar and Alan was on upright bass. I'd pop in to see them on my way home from a late shift in the newsroom. Then I moved to Paris, and Eric moved to the weekend section of the paper, covering music. He did a fine job at it, too. Twenty years ago or so, Eric decided to flip his life around and started making music for a living rather than simply writing about it. He co-founded a band called Last Train Home. At first, they performed in the Washington metropolitan area and won local music awards. Eventually, Eric moved to Nashville with his wife, our former Washington Post colleague, Mary Ann Werner. And together they founded Red Beat Records, a label that puts out folk music, roots rock, Americana, bluegrass, country, singer-songwriter, and even French chanson. In 2011, Eric and his music partner, Peter Cooper, produced I Love, Tom T. Hall's Songs of Fox Hollow, a modern recreation of Hall's 1974 children's album with performances by Buddy Miller, Bobby Bear, Patty Griffin, Dwayne Eddy, and of course, Last Train Home. They performed The Mysterious Fox of Fox Hollow. Here's a snippet. The Mysterious Fox of Fox Hollow 
doesn't have many friends He hides in the forest behind a big rock Sniffs with his nose in the wind You'll never see him, there's no need to look He'll hide in the grass or he'll hide in a bush Sometimes he will run and jump over a log For he is afraid of your dog The LP was nominated for a Grammy for Best Children's Album, and Eric went to the awards in Los Angeles. It was pretty thrilling for him, but also for all of his longtime friends and supporters, like me. When I needed music for the Green Dream podcast, I immediately thought of my old friend Eric, and he kindly offered up instrumental versions of songs from Cap Postal, his solo album of French chansons. Here's what it sounds like when he sings along. This is Si Tu Vois Ma Mère, by Sidney Bechette, as the French say. Aussitôt je vois, je ne sais pourquoi, le balcon fleurit, où tu m'as souri, quand je suis parti, souviens-toi. Depuis ce temps, je voyage. Et sur toutes les routes À tout jamais ton doux visage Qu'un rêve fleur demeure Car le temps qui fuit This time of year, I always put on Holiday Limited, an EP that Eric recorded with Last Train Home in 2000. You can find some of Holiday Limited's songs on Spotify and the entire EP on SoundCloud. I thought it'd be a nice way to end this final episode of The Green Dream's second season. We'll be back in the new year with a slew of fabulous and fascinating guests, beginning with supermodel-turned-activist Amber Valletta. I hope you'll join us, and I wish you a wonderful holiday season. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 
384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. This episode of The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas, from TalkBox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert, with mix and master by Kayla Elrod, music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.